If I asked you, tell me a time you sat down with the leader and felt immediate inspiration and growth, what and who would you describe? Well, for me, this occurred during this interview on multiple occasions as I had the great pleasure of speaking with my guest, Dr. Sean Woodley, as he provides fantastic stories about his passion for music, culturally responsive classrooms, equity in schools, and mental health for educators. Please join us as we discuss these very important topics. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Dr. Woodley, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Mr. Stamper. It's an absolute honor to be here. I, I do not take it lightly when offered to have a conversation and join someone else's platform. I very appreciate the offer. I really do. Oh, it's truly my honor. I told you before we even started recording that me and my wife have been huge fans of you on social media, especially your Instagram account. But Dr. Woodley, if you wouldn't mind, as we begin our conversation, if you would just share with the listeners about your educational and leadership journey. Absolutely. As you've already mentioned, my name is Dr. Sean Woodley. And going back to high school, right before college, I actually had the intention of being a musician. I was always into music, into band and things like that. Sports too, but music kind of just naturally, I gravitated towards it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. In that age of just kind of wanting to be young, wild and free, I guess, (laughs) I wanted to play drums and go on tour. So you couldn't tell me that I was not going to be in somebody's band going around the world playing drums at that time. But I got some really good advice from one of my teachers at the time. And he told me to just, he said, make yourself a little bit more well-rounded and be prepared. And instead of just studying music performance, you can study music and education at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that way you can still play on the back end. You, you might not come out of college and just go right on tour. He, he said, <laughs> you know, so just you want to make sure that you have yourself a plan B yep. or, or a 1A, if you will. So I, I, and it was some of the best advice at that time in my life that I had gotten. And so studying in college music and studying education really changed the trajectory of a lot for me. Mm-hmm. And I got into my uh, grad school program and did student teaching and really, really enjoyed it. Even the coursework up until that point, just the theories and, and understanding the psychology side of education and what I got to learn about myself and connecting with others. It was really interesting. But when I got into the classroom on the student teaching side, that's what really hooked me. And I really, really enjoyed the experience. Uh, Got into a classroom of my own. I began teaching in an urban school district in the southeastern part of Virginia and taught there for about eight years before moving into uh, moving to Atlanta and teaching public school for another two years before I started teaching at the college level. Yep. And so now I, I teach at the college level and I teach teachers, specifically I teach around classroom management. And I also have the opportunity to kind of consult and do speaking engagements uh, all over the country. It's really, really exciting work where I get to motivate and pour into educators about all things about how to teach, hustle, and inspire. Yeah. That's in in a nutshell, that's the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I got to hear a little bit of you speaking on the internet, of course, and you were talking about being a DJ while mm-hmm. being a teacher and yes. how you felt like that improved your teaching. And I'm just curious, you know, how did that job that you were doing at nighttime, mm-hmm. how did that transfer into the classroom to make you a better teacher? 
Well, here's the thing. I got started DJing kind of, again, in that music realm. I, I never really left it. Yeah. Um, and so I was in a position where I was teaching and to supplement my income a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I had, as you mentioned, the side hustle as a DJ. And so there were many a day I would pull up into the schoolyard and I would have in my passenger seat, you know, notes in my bag of teacher things. And in my trunk, I would have two turntables. <laughs> and so most Thursdays and, and Friday nights and most weekends, I would leave and go from the classroom literally to the club. And I was particularly when I was uh, still teaching in Virginia, I was growing in both professions kind of at the same time. Yep. I didn't really start DJing until after college. And I kind of just really stumbled my way into it and had some really good guidance and mentorship and, and picked up on a lot of things really, really quickly, kind of like teaching. Yep. And so I began to just as I grew in year three and year four, year five in each, I, I noticed that there were a lot of similarities between like my objective in one profession versus the other. And sometimes it's kind of like, well, what do teaching and what does being a DJ, what do they have to do with one another? If you think about it in these terms, if I am a DJ, I am in that club or that bar mitzvah or that homecoming party, whatever the event may be, that wedding, I'm in a one-to-many environment, just like teaching. I am in those instances, I am the source of motivation. I am the reason that you are going to dance to this particular song. Yep. I am the reason in that classroom that you are going to engage with that content. I'm also curating specific things it's, it's kind of, I, I use the analogy, if you have like your Apple Music or your Spotify, you might have a playlist. Mm -hmm. And that playlist is very lifeless, if you will, to hit play on a playlist. And you might have some songs that you like, you might, you know, jam and groove a little bit, but there's something else added to that when you add the human element to it. Mm -hmm. And really take those things and now add timing to it selection, move some things around and really respond in real time to what's happening, switching some things up just like you would with your lessons. Yep. It's really about what you add to that, the creative side of it. So really understanding that in my role as a DJ and then bringing that same understanding into that, in, into the classroom really helped to highlight what was happening and how I was growing in each role. And it really, really became a, a unique kind of introspective opportunity for me in both professions. It was, it was quite cool, actually. So I'm just curious, with your experience with music, do you think hip hop or music in general should be brought to the classroom? And if so, like how can teachers use that as a tool to help engage the students? No, I do not. And let me tell you why. For me, Personally, I enjoy hip hop music. I enjoy R&B. I enjoy a lot of jazz, house. That's me personally. Sure. Someone else may not enjoy that, even though their students might, which is fine and good. I think what happens a lot of times is a lot of teachers make the mistake with good intention mm -hmm. of trying to be culturally relevant, which is nothing wrong with that. But what will happen is in that event to try and bring hip hop into the classroom. If you're not a fan of it yourself, it can come across very disingenuous. Sure. 
and it, and your students can very easily pick up on that. Mm-hmm. It's especially if it's something that you haven't developed a level of comfort with or appreciation of, if you will. Now, if that's your lane, by all means, do it. Right. If it's even if it's something that is that you're willing to bring into your life and to become accustomed with, that's all fine and good. But sometimes people feel like, especially, you know, I teach in an urban school mm-hmm. or I teach in, you know, I teach students of color and I know that they like hip hop. So I have to, nobody said you have to do all that. Mm-hmm. That That is not, that's relevant, yes, but that is not always the responsive thing to do as far as culture. It, mm-hmm. It's so much more than simply music. What's at the root of that as far as what music has been in my life and how I've been able to grow in those professions and what I help educators with a lot of times is creativity. Creativity is really what fosters below the surface a lot of times the level of just natural motivation that comes with creativity. If you think of it in terms of like a starving artist. Like a lot of times if I'll speak to an audience or if I'm facilitating staff development, I, I, I use that analogy, you know, starving artists, we were relatively familiar with that term. Oh, yeah. Essentially, if you think about it, a starving artist is someone who is willing to sacrifice regular income for the sake of creativity. Mm-hmm. Whether that person is in fine art, painting, drawing, musician, cooks, creativity, things that radiate and things that build off of individual creativity. As educators, we have one of the few professions where we can actually leverage creativity on a regular basis. You have your standards, you have your objectives in that classroom, but what you do with those standards and what you do with those objectives, sprinkling your individuality, your creativity on that, there are endless, literally endless possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's when the job starts getting really fun where we fall flat sometimes with that is misunderstanding creativity and misunderstanding the connection between the content and our students and how we can leverage creativity in response to our students culturally and build off of that. I want to touch on a term that you use. You said culturally responsive. And Mm -hmm. I want to just highlight that because for our listeners that may not understand what that means, how can a teacher create a culturally responsive classroom? In a nutshell, it's understanding what it is and what it looks like, and then at a fundamental level, kind of how to get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean. A lot of times when we are taught to become teachers, a lot of the ways that we are taught, especially with a lot of the pedagogical techniques and things that we use coming into the classroom, they're based off of Eurocentric principles of learning. Mm-hmm. Now, those things can work, but a lot of times, especially when you're talking about students of color and in urban schools, we often find ourselves falling flat because what is happening is the way that we're teaching our students, it doesn't align with how they make sense of the world. Right. Culturally responsive teaching in a nutshell is leveraging how your students make sense of the world and using that to teach them. Sometimes that whole culturally relevant and culturally responsive, those two things get interchanged and they're two very different things. The hip hop is, for example, that is something that may be relevant to your students, but relevance is surface level. 
we talk about culturally responsive, we're talking about going below the surface to meet our students where they are and leverage how they make sense of the world and use that to engage them in instruction. Yeah, I love that. Let's talk about the classroom and schools in general as far Mm -hmm. as equity. I know you just spoke at a conference about equity in the classroom and in schools. And so a lot of my audience is either aspiring leaders or leaders in a current role. Sure. What would be first steps for a leader to create equal access for all students to resources and other opportunities? There are a lot of different layers to that because unfortunately, a lot of schools and systems have become very politicized. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about access to funds. Sure. And in, in, in my opinion, yeah. let's just say, and that is not something always that school leaders have the opportunity to influence. Mm-hmm. However, one thing inside the confines of that school, inside the confines of that classroom that we can influence and be aware of is the funds that you do have, what you choose to use them for. A lot of the textbooks that are used in schools, a lot of the resources that we use in schools, you can really, I mean, I I had a conversation with someone the other day and he is a a white male teaching in a school, in in a predominantly white school, but he told of how a conversation that he had with some students and parents in regards to race Mm -hmm. and teaching them about things outside of the quote unquote white centered uh, curriculum and textbooks. And he, had, he got some pushback from that. And he, he, he kind of did an example. He took a regular textbook and just flipped it and just landed on a page. And then another page, and he did it like three or four times. And every single time at the center of the discussion, at the center of what was being learned, it essentially pointed to a white male. Yep. Now you have a lot of people that you're leaving out of that. You have women, you have people of color, males and females. You have indigenous, like depending on what time sure. period we're talking about here. So there are things that you can control to be sure that equity is a part of what is being learned, not just for students of color, but it's important for all students. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You and your position now, you're working with aspiring teachers and teachers that Mm -hmm. will be in the classroom soon. And you had talked about working with them on classroom management. And I also know that Mm -hmm. you did a workshop not too long ago on alternatives to suspensions. So I love talking about restorative practices. And um, I'm Mm -hmm. just curious on what are some, you know, suggestions that you have for teachers on how to change behavior without using suspensions? Absolutely. One of the things when we talk about behavior is really peeling back the surface to look at the teacher first. Because what happens a lot of times with behavior management, classroom management is, you know, when we, by the time we get to that point, truthfully, Mr. Stamper, of alternatives to suspension, a lot of times it's already too late. We need to really examine what happens before we get to that point of a student needing to be removed from school or being disciplined. Mm One of the key things that I help educators with in that workshop, not just aspiring educators, but those currently practicing in the classroom, is uncovering and looking at the lens through which we make sense of the world. Because that culturally responsive part is not just important for our students, but it is important for us. Because how we make sense of the world is going to determine how we interact with our students and the decisions that we make. If you look at 
the data, like discipline data nationwide in a lot of, and, and you can really, especially with a lot of metropolitan area school systems, 95, 94, 95% of discipline data comes from three broad categories. You have defiance, you have disruption, and you have disrespect. I'm not talking about fights. I'm not talking about bringing weapons to school. That's, that accounts for a small fraction, less than 5%. Yep. The key thing that I try to help those that are in the classroom understand about those three broad areas, defiance, disruption, and disrespect, is that those are extremely subjective, meaning that the definition of what disrespect is can change from person to person. Because I could ask you, you know, what, 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 what is disrespect to you? And you could tell me exactly what it is and be valid in that. And that's important. I could also give you my definition of what I feel and believe wholeheartedly disrespect is and be valid as well. What happens a lot of times is the understanding of what disrespect, defiance, and disruption vary from person to person, coupled with the fact that disrespect is defined differently, not just from teacher to teacher, but teacher to student. And what determines something that is disruptive, what it determines something that is defiant. And so essentially what we're talking about at a foundational level are cultural symptoms of things that really have unwritten rules. Mm -hmm. And really what is really happening in front of us, but we can't see it, it's a clash of things that are unwritten. That's essentially what is happening on a regular basis. So you have this teacher who is very valid in his or her feelings of what it is to be disrespectful, but then you have a student who at the same time has his or her feelings about what it means to be respectful or disrespectful, and those things don't align, but who has the authority in that position? Yep. It is the educator, the teacher. And so now you have instances where it is easy with the stroke of the pen to write that disciplinary referral, to write that, you know, that, that action that classifies something as disruption, defiance or disrespect and now you get two or three of those now we have to escalate this now we get to the point of suspension now we get to the point of now okay well what can we do to as an alternative when really did we need to get there in the first place what would a conversation of how you define disrespect how that student defines disrespect what would that have alleviated had that been a part of the conversation ahead of time what would it have done for that, that educator to examine his or her lens with how he or she views what constitutes as respect and understanding, well, this, this student said that to me. And I understand that although it may have felt an emotional charge for me, what was the intent? A lot of times we get impacted by what is said or what is done, but what was the intent? And it's hard because now we're emotionally charged mm -hmm. and we're invested. If, if you say something to tick me off, I'm invested and I'm going to do, I'm not dealing with this. I'm writing that referral. So we really have to be aware of these things. And as difficult as it can be in certain circumstances, difficult as it can be, we have to examine the lens with which we make sense of the world to really examine. Was that really something that was intended to be disrespectful? Was that really something that was defiant. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. 
in, in the classroom, you might have an instance of a student that gets up and goes over to the pencil sharpener to sharpen his or her pencil. And the teacher will say something along the lines of, don't, don't you want to go have a seat? No. And the student will continue to sharpen his or her pencil. Now, in the teacher's mind, what I'm telling you to do is this is not the appropriate time to have a seat. But the way it came out was a question. And the student technically responded to the question. No, I, I don't. I want to sharpen my pencil. But that teacher, it is very easy in that instance to interpret that yep. as somebody who you can pick. That is that is disrespect. You know what? I think I want to categorize that as defiance today. It's very it's very simple. And, and that's just one example of how those things can very easily escalate. And now we get into situations where you have two or three of those and we're talking about a suspension. Yeah, it's so true. And, and being an administrator myself, I've seen that so many times. And unfortunately, um, it just kind of depends on the day and the person. And, and you're so, so right in the sense that, you know, it is subjective and it, it can change even to that same person. It can change day by day as far as what that's that right. Like. So I think looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, you know, what are our definitions for those three terms? to make better decisions mm -hmm. going forward. And I think there also is some biases and assumptions that are intertwined in there too that we really need to, Absolutely. to reflect on, which kind of leads me to my next question too is over the summer with obviously with COVID and everything, um, we've had a lot of time for perspective on what is going on in the black community and with police mm -hmm. brutality and mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter. And we haven't been in session with schools, but we're going to be coming back soon. What are some first steps that a teacher or administrator could do to prepare for that topic? Sure. A couple of different things, and, and it can vary depending on the population mm -hmm. of the school and the surrounding community. Um, something like this can impact different communities in different ways, but I think it is something that we have to understand. Being a Black male myself, there's a certain level of, for lack of a better phrase, grief. Yeah. And fear that comes with these things. And it has been a very, very emotionally draining time to deal with these things. And truth be told, it's something that I've always had to deal with. Mm -hmm. I was telling someone on another interview that I was doing, I, I, I can remember my mother having a conversation with me since I, I want to say I, I couldn't have been older than maybe five or six, mm -hmm. that any time that I go into the store, make sure that I do not walk out without a receipt and a bag. At that time, I did not understand the implications of what she was saying, growing and now becoming more aware of these things. My mother was essentially trying to prepare me for racism mm -hmm. at a very early age. So this is, you're, you're talking about going on 30 plus years now. And then with everything being exponentially compounded as of late in the last couple of months, it has been a lot. So there is, from a leadership perspective, there's a certain level of empathy that is needed there, especially if you have teachers of color in your yeah. staff. There is a certain level of understanding that has to really, really be there. They need to understand that you are on their side and you as a leader, as someone in that position, have to be aware enough to really, really, really take a look at yourself first to make sure that you are creating a safe space for your educators of color. And also not even just the educators of color, but 
other educators, white educators. This is not just something that black people deal with. This is something that we are being faced with as a civilization. So what is the conversation like? First of all, not what is the conversation? Is there even a conversation or is this something that is just swept under the rug and we act like it didn't happen? Is there a safe space in the confines of that wall, of those walls of that school for educators to really express themselves and to be emotionally and professionally free? Mm-hmm. If you if you talk to a lot of Black people, if we're, if we're being honest here, a lot of times we feel like, especially when we are not just the minority in the real world, but the minority in the school, as far as numbers, we feel like we cannot be our true selves. Sure. And that is emotionally draining on a daily basis. So what is being done in the confines of that wall, of those walls of that school to help those educators feel like this is where you can be you. You have emotional freedom to express yourself. You have emotional freedom to really be your individual self here. And how is that conversation being facilitated so that they know that and don't just have to figure that out? Right. I think that's important. No, it's huge. And if the teachers feel like that, what do the students feel like? Correct. Because it only trickles down. Well, this is going to be a hard segue, but, you know, we're talking about COVID-19 and, you know, just where we are in society right now. And a lot of people are fearful about going back to school for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. And teachers as a profession, it's very stressful. You know, when you're teaching and preparing teachers or you're working with other educators, what do you do to help them through mental wellness? One of the things that I really try to help educators understand is that it is important to take the time to be intentional with pouring back into yourself. As educators, we are naturally givers. We naturally put our students, we naturally put our families before us. One of the key things, first thing in the morning, nine times out of 10, that alarm clock rings, we get up, and whether it is letting the dog out to go walk or feeding the kids and then getting dressed and throwing things in the car so that we can get the kids to school or daycare and then just just get there right before we're supposed to start our day. You know, in some way, shape or form, most of us fit into that structure. One of the key things that, that I try to do and I try to help educators understand with is that when you get your day started in the right way, it can really change the trajectory and, and really put you at a peaceful state so that when certain things occur, when life happens, which it is going to happen every single day, you're in a better place to not only just accept it, but process it better. Because one of the, the key things where we, where we lose out on our control emotionally Essentially, when when something happens to us, you you have that stimulus and you have that response. You're driving down the highway, someone cuts you off. In that moment, you're automatically, you see red, you're ticked off. That moment between the stimulus and the response is nil. What we're trying to do on essentially on, on a daily basis is increase that range of stimulus to response because in that space is where we make choices. We can control, when we put ourselves in a position to control how we respond to stimuli, now we're giving ourselves the opportunity to choose how we respond instead of being just completely reactive. Mm -hmm. In that space where we have that choice, even if that space is just wide, just a little bit, 
each and every time we give ourselves an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm not going to take this personal. Yes, that person did cut me off. And, and yes, I did not like it, but I'm going to choose to continue to go down the highway because I'm still alive. Nothing happened and everything is okay. Simple example, but something that can really, I mean, depending on how you roll, it could tick you off and ruin your entire day. Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple projects that you've got going on. One sure. is an amazing event, the Super Teacher Summit. So for our listeners, can you just share about this upcoming event? Absolutely. The Super Teacher Summit is an online virtual experience. It, it's a conference taking place July 29th and July 30th. I'm very excited about it. We have some dynamic speakers yes. coming from across the country that are uh, speaking on topics of culturally responsive teaching, behavior support or classroom management, and STEM. Nice. And I'm very excited about this because not only is this going to be a unique professional development experience that educators can participate in from the comfort of their own home or office, but it's presented in using principles of gamification. Mm -hmm. So you don't just have to sit there and just look at your screen. You're actually interacting with what is happening. It's it's really, really going to be something that I, I feel is going to be very different, very unique, but fun and help you learn at the same time. So um, I'm very excited about that. If people were interested in, in learning more about that, you can simply go to superteacherssummit.com and you'll see all of the registration information and details there. Yeah, and I also will have that link in the show notes. So make sure that you go there, click on the link and make sure that you are signed up for the Super Teacher Summit. And then also, Dr. Woodley, I want to talk about your book, MC Meets sure. Move the Class, How to Spark Engagement and Motivation in Urban and Culturally Diverse Classrooms. So for our listeners, if they haven't had an opportunity to read your book yet, will you just give a quick synopsis? Absolutely. That book walks the reader through growth for me as an educator, particularly what I mentioned about growing in my profession as a DJ and growing yeah. in my profession as an educator highlighting four particular elements uh, of what I call the elements of urban education. And so we're talking about alliance, artistry, awareness, and achievement. And uh, I'll go a little bit backwards here. When we talk about achievement, it is about how we can help our students get from basically where they are to where they need to be. Mm -hmm. How can we create those engaging and culturally responsive and relevant learning experiences? The alliance part about it is the relationship building factor. What does it mean? What does it look like to build relationships with our students? And the awareness part about it, a lot of times when we're in the classroom and we focus a lot on our students, how can, how can we can engage and motivate them and how can we get them from where they are to where they need to be, which is great. But we leave a huge part of the equation out of that. That's the teacher. What introspective, reflective activities can we do? How can we increase our social emotional learning so that we can be more self-aware, manage our emotions, manage our relationships better. And then lastly, the artistry factor. And I touched on this a little bit earlier, yep. the, the creative side of teaching. So the achievement, alliance, artistry, and awareness are the four elements that are detailed in that book. And so Dr. Woodley, I always like asking my guests at the end of the podcast just about tips or tricks that you could provide to aspiring leaders. One of the things that comes to mind immediately is kind of touching on what I mentioned earlier about le good leadership is not just 
becoming someone who gives commands. Mm -hmm. Good leadership to me is somebody who I want to follow. That that is good leadership to me. What what are you doing? What what is it that is said about you sometimes without even having to open your mouth that makes someone want to follow you? What example is being set so that that person can not only want to follow you, but want to even have integrity when you're not around to continue to grow and to continue to make those decisions that are best for themselves and best for those students? What is, what is it that is being done to set that example and create the conditions for those other educators and those students that follow those other educators in the building. So that would be a bit of a tip for me. Yeah, most definitely. So Dr. Woodley, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Pretty much at the hashtag Teach Hustle Inspire. You can, uh, I'll pop right up um, in, on Instagram at Teach Hustle Inspire. On Twitter, I'm on there pretty much regularly. Um, it's at Sean Woodley. Yeah, Teach Hustle Inspire was too long. <laughs> and then on Facebook <laughs> at Teach Hustle Inspire. So where did those three words come from? I'm just curious. Sure, sure. They came to me in one afternoon, to be quite honest with you, but after years and years of research, uh, reflection and growth. Nice. That's the simplest way that <laughs> I could describe that. <laughs> Dr. Woodley, it's it's been such a, a pleasure and honor to speak with you. You are a brilliant educator and leader, and I am just so thankful that I had an opportunity to, to speak with you today. Thank you very, very much for having me to and sharing your platform with me. I, I consider it a privilege and an honor. Thank you.